Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is March 26, 2021, and I'm speaking with Wendy Gonover at Chapman University. Wendy is the author of The Peculiar Institution and the Making of Modern Psychiatry, 1840-1880. Thank you for joining us, Wendy. Thank you for having me. In your book, you tell the story of the Eastern Lunatic Asylum of Virginia in Williamsburg and its supervisor, John Galt II. What made this institution and its supervisor distinctive in their time? The feature that made the institution and the superintendent behind the institution distinctive is the fact that this was the only institution to accept slaves and free blacks as patients and to employ slaves as caregiving attendants. That was not something that was done anywhere else. There were institutions in the South that had initially accepted free blacks as patients, but they quickly discontinued that practice and it wasn't considered uh, best professional standards. So Eastern State at the time it was called Eastern Lunatic Asylum, was unique in those features. What about the kinds of therapy and the way they treated their patients? Well, in that, they were like any other institution. John M. Galt was one of the co-founders of the organization that would later become the American Psychiatric Association, but he was one of 13 original founders. And they read one another's work. They read asylum reports from Europe and particularly from Great Britain. And so they were all interested in moral treatment. It's a term that was most often associated with Philippe Pinel, who was a physician at the Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. And he coined the term, but when we say moral treatment, we really mean moral as in psychological, so psychological faculties. The idea that environment had an influence on mental well-being is how we might talk about it today. And so they were all advocates of moral therapy, of creating a healthy, salubrious environment that would help calm and ease distress and you know, be the ideal environment in which to recover your senses. And they all wanted to do away with restraints, mechanical restraints, with straitjackets, with chairs, with cuffs, as well as replace corporal punishment, physical violence that had existed that we think of when we think of bedlam. When you look at Hogarth, Rake's Progress, and you see images of of bedlam, it was a kind of reaction to that. They wanted it to be rational and reflect enlightened values. For an asylum that had both men and women, that had white people and black people, uh, both freed and enslaved black people, and all these folks were both patients and attendants, how did that work? How did authority flow? Who had authority about patients who were committed, about diagnoses or treatment, or when folks were released? It was complicated. (laughs) Um, I mean, in theory, the, the superintendent was the paramount authority, and he would have in theory, I say, exercise power over all of these decisions. But in in actual fact, the lower down the hierarchy, the more frequently you were interacting with patients. And the upper administration had less time because they were attending to administrative duties. And in terms of commitment, both as a protection for the superintendent, there was generally a committee, and that committee would meet the sort of board of directors, and they would decide, patients would be presented to them, and they would decide collectively Uh, who would be admitted. But it was up to the doctor in terms of who would be released. That was deferred to his authority on 
And so there were some patient protections in place, but they were certainly not what we would find acceptable today. And so it wasn't unusual for family members or for, in the case of Eastern Lunatic Asylum, for slave masters to admit slaves just because they wanted to, or husbands to admit wives uh, just on their own authority. But even so, it was it did have to be presented before this, this board of directors, and they would have to approve the admission. Wendy, we shared your book with another reader who uh, has some questions for you, and we'll play the first one now for you. My name is Thomas Tudor. I'm a retired clinical psychologist, and I have a question about racial identity. There's a lot of information in your book about how black patients and white patients were treated differently. I'm wondering how biracial patients might have been understood and treated. Surely there were a number of people who were obviously biracial. Yes, although they wouldn't have been identified as such necessarily sometimes, you know, not in the asylum records, but sometimes in other records from this period, you'll see people identified as mulatto, but it wouldn't have mattered. They would have been treated as a black person. The big difference would have been, were you coming in as an enslaved person or were you coming in as a free black person? And so as as a free black person who would be entering the asylum, you would more than likely well, frankly, always uh, be indigent. And so you would be a ward of the state. You would have been arrested for maybe disturbance of the peace or something that would have brought you to the attention of the authorities. And generally, the first stop would be jail and then from jail to the asylum. Um, And it wouldn't have mattered if you were mixed race or not. And in Virginia, there are quite a few black people in this period who would have been mixed race, but it, it wouldn't have mattered. You would have been treated as black. For the patients who were enslaved or free blacks or who were white women, they had few or no rights or privileges, a little control over their lives, and were often subject to violence outside the asylum. So how did the asylum that was paying attention to moral therapy and the environment of the patients, how did the asylum reconcile its effort to provide care with this often very harmful environment? That's a really excellent question, and the thing is they couldn't reconcile it. So you can't create a peaceful environment when you're uh, situated in something that is inherently violent. Um, Slavery is inherently violent, uh, and it caused a great deal of what we would identify as trauma for people who were either raped or having family members sold away or being beaten. So they couldn't reconcile those practices with the asylum. What they could say is that the asylum represented kind of the, the paternalistic ideal with the superintendent supposed to be sort of the model of, if you will, a kind of master of both mastery of your emotion and mastery of all the decisions for the asylum. And he, because it's always a he, would have represented the ideal and would have used persuasion and the powers of persuasion uh, over and above any kind of physical violence. Although, of course, they did and not infrequently resort to the douche, which is, you know, like a forced shower, kind of akin to waterboarding. And they did sometimes straight jacket patients. So it was always an ideal. It was never an actuality. But it wasn't possible to reconcile the ideal peaceful environment with the lives that people were leading outside if they were slaves or just implicated in the slave system in any way. And so they just chose to ignore it. One of the things that I think as a result of that for long-term consequences is that the problems that individuals were facing 
be it a woman assaulted by her husband or an enslaved person found in the woods pregnant. I'm giving you an actual example. A woman was found in the woods with virtually no clothes and pregnant and traumatized. They would have just focused on that individual as someone uh, with a mental illness, someone with a disease that needed to be remedied rather than looking to the society that contributed to their breakdown. That I see as kind of the long-term consequence of, of looking at violence as the problem of individuals rather than a societal problem. When it comes to diagnosing patients, uh, Thomas Tudor has two more questions about diagnosis for you. I worked for decades with adults who had experienced severe trauma, especially in childhood. Throughout your book, there are lists of diagnoses that have been given to patients, yet many of them seemed not much more than name-calling. To your knowledge, was there a commonly used text or document that was the official diagnostic manual of that era? Or were the doctors just pulling words out of thin air? Clearly, that era was prior to the existence of anything that might be called a science of human behavior. Did the word insanity have any specific meaning? Or did it amount to little more than a pejorative term? That's a really complex question. Really interesting, too. So there is no DSM, but they're not making it up as they go. I mean, there are professional organizations and there are publications. The American Journal of Insanity is sort of the one that represents the, the American version. And they were reading these things and comparing notes and having their annual meetings. They were using a very ancient diagnostic, mania versus melancholia. I mean, that's the sort of basis from which they, they begin to build. And there are subcategories within that. So there's monomania, hippomania. And so they're not making this up entirely. They are taking ancient ideas and then layering and trying to figure it out as they go. And it certainly was stigmatized, but these institutions were seen as sort of places of hope. They were seen as curative. They were not seen as holding cells, quite the opposite. In theory, anyway, in terms of what they were going for, in terms of their ideal, they were looking to cure or improve people who entered and into treatment there. And so they were not name-calling. They were trying to classify. They didn't use the same diagnostics that you would find today. And they didn't really talk about childhood trauma the way that Mr. Tudor is brought up. But it was not random. And it was not pejorative, per se. Could you talk a little bit about the education of the superintendent, John Galt, and other people who are superintendents at similar institutions? Galt was, uh, he had actually gone to University of Pennsylvania where he studied medicine. Of course, there's no licensing board, so this is before physicians are licensed. And pretty much anybody could hang out a shingle and call themselves a doctor. But he, he really did go to University of Pennsylvania and he did attend lectures and do rounds in the hospital and observe surgeries. But his family had long been involved in the asylum before he left for medical school. So it was kind of a family business. And that included others who had received training, his father, but also relatives who hadn't, and who had begun life as jailers. And so John M. Galt had sort of the best education that could be had at that time. He was, you know, a physician, but not licensed physician. And that was the case, I think, for, for all of 
the medical superintendents. Part of the reason that they founded this organization is they wanted to be perceived as professionals. They were trying to distinguish themselves from charlatans and quacks who promised miracle cures. So they were looking to professionalize, and they did hold professional standards. They aren't the same professional standards that we have today, and it wasn't the same education, but it was the best that could be had at that time in the mid-19th century. And Thomas Tudor has one more specific question about diagnosis. Very early in my career, I became aware that alcohol abuse causes more human misery than all the psychiatric diagnoses put together. In your book, you mentioned that some attributed a lot of mental problems to intemperance. Did they seem to be referring to alcohol abuse specifically, or were they using that word in a more general sense? Yes, to all three. They used it in general, the idea that intemperate behavior could run the gamut. It could mean overindulging in food, overindulging in sex. It could be all kinds of overindulgence. But in general, they used it in connection to alcohol. And in the period that I'm looking at, it's before you know any sort of definition of alcoholic that comes later. It comes in you know, the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, and after. But they still did connect alcohol abuse uh, and temperance to insanity. And the thing that's really interesting about that question, though, is one of the ways in which John M. Galt uh, looks at that evidence is he, he builds a case that actually he finds intemperance to be harmful and, and a contributing factor in people's mental demise. But he finds abolitionism to be a greater threat. And he thinks that fanaticism, religious fanaticism, which he connects to the movement, anti-slavery movement, is more harmful than intemperance. That is an intriguing uh, idea that he, you know, propounds in his writings. Uh, Controversial, to say the least. Yeah, that was a really interesting part of your book. You talk about the chaos at the asylum during the Civil War when slaves were freed when they were under Confederate occupation, not freed under Union occupation, then freed again. And that was fascinating. But after the Civil War, after slavery had been abolished, what happened to the efforts to provide moral therapy in asylums, um, to reduce the use of physical constraints and violence in the asylum, and to provide care for people of different races in the same place in some a similar way. What happened to those efforts? Well, generally the way that it's talked about in the post-war period is one of declension. That's the overarching narrative that you'll you'll see. And and I I, I don't disagree with that. Um, it, it, this is the period in which you have overcrowding, underfunding, and a general decline in any effort to provide a sort of attentive, individualized moral therapy. Part of that, I think, and a part that I'm introducing in my book has to do with kind of uh, race relations and race dynamics because, you know, it had never been popular, this idea that you would have mixed race institutions. And once the uh, superintendent Galt dies, um, he dies in 1862, he actually overdoses um, on opiates. But he he was sort of the only proponent of this idea and very quickly uh, it's done away with. And so in the post-war period, you have immediately segregated institutions. And although quality of all institutions essentially declines um, after this, the real harbinger of that decline are the segregated institutions for African-Americans only. 
and they don't even attempt to do any kind of moral therapy. That history has yet to be told in terms of all of the institutions that were for African-Americans only, but you'll find for, for the evidence that I have looked at in North Carolina and Richmond, uh, in Petersburg, there are other institutions um, as well. I think there are a total of, I don't want to say, but I think it's 12, but I could be wrong about that. And they're just not very good. They resort to a lot of mechanical restraints. They are essentially, I called it a plantation operation. It's a large farm where people be forced to work. There's no running water. There aren't enough beds. There's ample evidence of abuse. All the attendants, as well as the doctors, are white. And there's a lot of racial animosity after the war. And there's plenty of evidence that the patients are being abused or even assaulted by guards or by the attendants who are essentially acting as guards. So the, the quality declines immediately, especially in all black institutions, and then across the board in, in all institutions. Um, and they become overcrowded. They, be, they become what, when you talk about insane asylums in the 19th century, to most people, this is what they envision, uh, a kind of American horror story. <laughs> That's what they're thinking of. They're thinking of the late 19th century, early 20th century institutions. And so, yeah, that's what happens. One of the things I think I should address is why it was controversial to admit black patients, both free black and enslaved patients, and most especially why it was controversial to employ enslaved attendants. So the reasons for not admitting black patients, the superintendents didn't didn't enumerate their reasons. They just thought it was, as they would have put it, common sense that it's just not something you do. You don't have social mixing. And practically speaking, this is in part because they were afraid that the presence of free blacks and enslaved patients would dissuade middle class and upper class families from committing their relatives. The connotations would be that it would be a pauper institution. Uh, and so they didn't want their relatives consigned to a pauper institution. They never went and actually spelled that out, just like people don't spell out their prejudice and racism and bias, but that is essentially what it was. Um, and in terms of black attendants, they didn't think that black attendants could provide moral care. The truth of the matter is that it, it wasn't always the Dorothy Dixes of the world who were actually attending to patients in the North, uh, but the shared whiteness was something that was socially acceptable and a comfort to them, whereas they thought that enslaved attendants wouldn't be motivated uh, to provide humane, kind care. Uh, they wouldn't be able to adhere to moral therapy because they didn't have the refined sensibilities, the sense of politeness, the sense of altruism that, say, a nun might have, or Dorothy Dix, or you know, the working class white attendants. Now, we know that there were, of course, instances of abuse with attendants who were accused of harming patients, um, maybe some fairly accused, others maybe not so fair because it is a very difficult job. But those instances that would become scandals, either public scandals or privately handled, they didn't reflect poorly on white people as a class of caregivers, whereas with the enslaved attendants, it did. And it just sort of fed into the kind of racist idea that they were not capable of providing moral care. So this is why it was controversial. And in fact, Dorothy Dix, when she visited um, the Eastern Lunatic Asylum, which she did on a couple occasions, uh, she recommended to the superintendent that he stop allowing enslaved attendants to have the authority and the power that they did. 
She wanted them to just stick to the cleaning of the floors and the preparation of the food, not to interact with the patients, which is what they were doing. They were personal care attendants. And they were even administering medicine, um, and they were accompanying the patients on walks. They were spending time with them and talking with them. They were the essentially the nurses to these patients, and she didn't approve of that. Uh, she recommended to the superintendent that he instead hire nuns, uh, that he go to the Sisters of Charity and hire these nuns, who she presumed were going to have a similar mindset to her, that, that they wouldn't be doing it for reasons of money. Now, of course, slaves didn't earn money, but that didn't matter to her because just the fact that they were black, uh, the fact that they were slaves, uh, categorically made them ineligible to be attendants. So she wanted him to hire nuns or white caregivers. Um, and he, he did push back on that. He understood how it looked. He wasn't adhering to the standards of care of his peers. And he did have some concerns that it might dissuade middle-class families from being admitted to the hospital. But he also thought that it was a bit unfair and that, um, that he selected carefully, he and the matron selected carefully those slaves who were attendants and that he trusted them and that many of them had served for a number of years and had proven themselves to be worthy attendants. Frankly, too, financially, it was cost-effective for the institution to hire this chief labor by paying the master's an annual fee and then occasionally also paying a percentage, sometimes up to 10%, directly to the slaves, which wasn't legal, but they did do it in recognition of the excellent quality of care that many of them provided. But it was very controversial, and he did push back on this idea that they were improper caregivers, but he also was subjected to professional pressure from his peers uh, and who dismissed the institution as being sort of backward because of the fact that slaves were providing the care. In terms of the patients, there were also complications in admitting black and white patients uh, in terms of where they would go on the wards. Now, the superintendent Galt said that it didn't matter and even if they were admitted to mixed-race wards, uh, that you know the, the patients were fine with it and he didn't see any problem. He wanted to persuade other superintendents to follow his example because he felt that it was cost-effective um, and that they were making a big deal out of it. If you're going to admit black patients, that you'd have to construct a different building, that that was a waste of money. He dropped that in the 1850s, and he did, in fact, wind up keeping the especially black women separate from white women patients. Um, and he did admit that even the black men, they were kept so busy doing jobs and working for the asylum that they, well, there wasn't that much social interaction. Um, so, but that was by the 1850s. But even so, he, he didn't think that even the wards themselves, especially for the men, needed to be segregated. Um, and that was extremely controversial. But again, all of the other members of, but for one, all the other members of this professional organization were elite white men from the north, from the northeast. Um, and so Galt was the only, Galt, was one of two Southerners, and the other Southerner was in Staunton, around the asylum there. That asylum had originally accepted free blacks as patients, but quickly discontinued the practice. Um, and the superintendent there was much more interested in complying with um, his peers and, and you know, earning their, their professional respect. Um, and they did repay him with professional respect uh, that Galt didn't get as a result of his controversial ideas. The third thing that I should mention that happened really only because 
Galt advocated mixed-race institutions, both in terms of patients and caregivers. And that is that he kind of pioneered this idea of outpatient care. And this was partly a practical necessity because slave masters paid a fee for any slaves that they wanted to admit. The state paid the fee for any free blacks who were admitted. And that fee was considerably less, um, sometimes um, less than half of what white patients, white indigent patients received uh, per, you know, per capita per year. And so that created financial pressure. People still eat the same amount. They still need firewood. Um, and if you're not being given the same amount based on the race of the patient, it's going to create a problem in terms of the services that you can provide. And so he, partly out of practical necessity and partly because he really believed that not restricting the movement of patients was just taking moral therapy that much further, like the free air and family life model that he was particularly inspired by Giel, which is in Belgium, was uh, a Catholic pilgrimage site that became a kind of care town. And you'll see sort of specials today, if you, you know, every now and then I, I see it in the news and uh, like 60 minutes a couple of years ago, maybe a decade or so ago, talked about the example of Giel um, as a kind of village care system, outpatient care system. And he wanted to create that in Williamsburg. Um, and it was partly driven by financial necessity, but it was partly on principle, the idea that it was just an extension of moral therapy, that allowing patients to come and go if they were stable enough to do so, or allowing them to live with families in Williamsburg would partially subsidize their care, but it would also give them a sense of freedom and self-respect. Um, so he tried to initiate this. There were a couple instances. There was a free black patient who delivered the newspaper, and he came and went, just sort of came to the asylum in the evening. There was a free black woman who was working as a, a cook in a family home, and she lived with them. At one point, she apparently made a threat um, against, supposedly a threat against the child in the home, and so she came back briefly to stay at the uh, hospital, and then she you know, was able to leave again and, and work as a cook in the house. So he was never able to implement it on the scale, like a keel. Um, but the fact that he tried and the fact that he was inspired to do that a good 20 years before any other American superintendent was talking about this, um, it's really because it was a mixed-race institution that he came up with this idea. So if we step back a bit, um, you've written about the Eastern Lunatic Asylum, and in many ways it's distinctive or unique or a first. When you look at this history, what kind of perspective does it offer to us? What role does this episode play in the making of modern psychiatry, or what insight can it offer us into that larger history? For some people, the idea of modern psychiatry is going to require a DSM. It's going to require systematic study that they will recognize as being legitimate. and This is going to be seen as a, a pre-modern. But I think what I've tried to show here is that actually our ideas about what represents an ideal institution and what an ideal caregiver looks like, or even innovative ideas like outpatient care, which uh, Superintendent Galt actually pioneered, partly as a consequence of not having enough funding because the funding levels were disparate for, for patients based on race, that all of these are there in this earlier period and that it is essentially, I know you've interviewed many authors who've talked about the ways in which 
categories of race were built into, sort of baked into the foundations of modern science. And so I'm trying to sort of contribute to that and say, actually, if you if you look at, for example, the effects of trauma or violence, but you only look at the individual as a person with it facing a disease rather than look at the society that produced the individual who then broke down. That's being baked into the very field in this period, this period which is supposed to be its most optimistic. It's the foundational moment for what's going to become professional psychiatry, yet at the core, in terms of access, in terms of patients, in terms of diagnosis, in terms of who is considered the ideal caregiver, these are all features in which essentially racism is present from the beginning. So another way that this is relevant, even though I'm ending the book in 1880, obviously a lot of time has elapsed and, and uh, institutions are not the same, there are still some of the same issues that they're grappling with. And one of them has to do with bias and policing. I know that you're talking to me from Philadelphia and I'm talking to you from quite close to San Clemente in California. and both of those cities have experienced recently um, public shooting uh, of people who were in distress. So Walter Wallace Jr., his family called. Uh, he was having a mental health crisis, and they called to get him help. And instead, what happened is the police arrived and, and wound up uh, killing him. And something very similar happened in San Clemente around the same time. Um, there was a, a man named Kurt Reinhold, and though I don't know all the details uh, of that situation, I know that he was a, a father and very active in his uh, children's sports and well-known and well-loved in his community, but he had fallen on some hard times and he was homeless and uh, he was probably, I don't know, but experiencing some kind of uh, mental distress as a result of becoming homeless. Um, and the police were called, and in this case it was a special unit that was supposed to help uh, be, receive special training to deal with um, mental illness, but they wound up uh, escalating a jaywalking incident into a, a, a killing. And so Kurt Reinhold was shot and, and killed in San Clemente. And so the issue of, of bias and whether or not police are trained uh, to recognize mental illness or if they tend to react um, as their racial bias kicks in and they tend to react to African-American men uh, as being sort of aggressive threats to them rather than people in distress, that's an issue that's ongoing. If it doesn't end up in... Uh, shooting and someone is admitted, there's also the question of who is doing the, tr the treatment, who is providing that treatment, who is sort of taking their history, and how do they regard that person, and have they been trained with with cultural psychiatry? Um, do they understand, you know, if you look at Galt, who looked at the sort of religious views of of anyone who professed anti-slavery abolitionism as fanaticism, obviously that there's not that, but there's still ideas about um, what we consider fanatical behavior, what is considered uh, an acceptable belief versus uh, an unacceptable belief that is indicative of, of mental illness. And that is very culturally dependent. And so someone has to have proper training for that. And it is still an issue in terms of who does the, the sort of physical restraints. Um, generally, it is as it was in the 19th century. The lower down the hierarchy you are, the more you're the one who's probably going to be putting your, your body on the line and, and putting somebody in a hold if they're, if they're considered a threat. Um, and that raises all kinds of issues. Whenever someone is, first of all, being committed against their will because they are 
you know, a threat, you know, you have to balance the issue of, of their personal liberties and the way in which it can or, or overlap with uh, racial persecution. And that becomes very challenging and tricky to navigate. And so I, I think that all of these issues are still, um, they're not the same, but they're very relevant today. Thank you, Wendy, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you very much. Wendy Gonover's book is The Peculiar Institution and the Making of Modern Psychiatry, 1840 to 1880, from the University of North Carolina Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.